Good afternoon and welcome to our College Sports Communicators live webinar. We are pleased to offer this session on working with women's lacrosse statistics, stat rules, and producing accurate statistics. Thanks for joining this important session as we discuss ways to assist CSC members in all areas of working with women's lacrosse statistics and stat rules. Our presenters are leaders in college lacrosse communications and statistics, and they are here to offer their thoughts and expertise and take your questions. And we welcome your questions at any time. Just place them in the Q&A function of this Zoom. You can use the chat function to comment, but please place all your comments in the Q&A channel. I am Miles McQuiggan, Assistant Commissioner for Communications and the Women's Across Contact at the Coastal Athletic Association. I will serve as your webinar moderator this afternoon. As a reminder, we are recording this webinar and later on the CSC website and YouTube page, you can watch it as an on-demand session. We also will offer it on numerous podcast channels. Please invite fellow current CSC colleagues to listen and watch this too. We are a few weeks into this college lacrosse season. And as so many of us know who are involved in the sport, we can always uh, learn from each other and we can always improve based on uh, the knowledge of those who work with the sport. We have lots of cover, so let's get started. We appreciate you joining us today. And let's introduce our guest panelists this afternoon. We have Stephen Gorchov from Hofstra University, the Associate Director of Athletics for Communications. Jill Guys from Johns Hopkins University, Assistant Director of Athletic Communications. And Kalina Roberts from the Savannah College of Art and Design. She's the Sports Information Director down in Savannah. Thank you, everyone, for being here this afternoon. Thanks, Miles. Thanks, Miles. As we get started this afternoon, let's start uh, with the start of the game. And let us start with uh, pregame planning. Let's start with making sure you are set up to be successful uh, on game day. And I want to start with you, Stephen, and just talking about, one, getting the, the stat program set up and then getting set up who needs to be part of your stat crew. So I'll give you uh, how we do it at Hofstra. Uh, our facility, uh, our press box is actually like five stories away from the field. So it takes a few more eyes to get things under control. Uh, but uh, at our setup at Hofstra involves a inputter at the computer, a caller next to the next to the stat inputter. Uh, then we have a clock operator who handles the scoreboard as well. And then somebody who handles the uh, possession clock. Uh, and those people also assist with calling uh, as well um, as does our PA person. We have a crew of about seven up in the press box that assist. And then the most important person, though, is the person at the field who is telling us anything and everything that's happening on the field, whether it's who had the ground ball that caused turnover or otherwise, or the uh, card, who the cards were on, and or uh, giving us other information from the field that the referees need a clock change. But it's really um, uh, because of our situation at Hofstra, we being so far from the field, uh, it's really important that you have a number of people in the press box to help assist uh, with seeing items uh, from that far away. Jill, we talked about this a little bit in our preparations and our discussions for this call. And, you know, something that a lot of us deal with is what Stephen dealt with, press boxes that are maybe in football stadiums, press boxes that are a good distance away. How do you solve that issue? Uh, we're, we're really lucky at Hopkins. Um we play in our football stadium. It's also our lacrosse stadium and our soccer stadium and our field hockey stadium. Uh, it seats about 8,000. It's not a huge stadium. And so we're 
pretty close to the field, a lot closer than Steven is. Um, I still use binoculars because I'm not getting any younger and uniform numbers are getting worse. Um, so that that's always my biggest thing. Our setup is very similar to Steven's and, and you know, we have a caller, I have an inputter, you know, we have people on the scoreboard and the clock and the PA that are kind of extra set of eyes. Um, we also have someone at the table, but they're they're just calling up when there's when there's cards or if there's if there's a clock change. Uh, we do participation um, in the press box. Um, but again, I will say the biggest thing for for us is is having binoculars. Um, just because again, like you know, the sixes and the eights and the zeros are starting to all kind of blend together. Um, We've had issues. I know we've had some complaints about about our uniforms. Um, I don't think they're terrible, but again, those numbers tend to blend together, which um, can be hard to read, especially you know at a place like Hofstra where you're a little bit further away. Um, something we also do is have a second computer. I'm usually the one calling. I'll have a second computer next to me or a tablet with the stream up, so I can check if I miss something or need to rewatch something. Um, so that that would be the other thing I would say. Um, but again, I, I can't emphasize enough having binoculars, um, especially if you're in a situation where you're further away from the field. Jill, I think uh, you got to a really good point on uniform numbers. This is when I'm going to take my annual opportunity to remind coaches to have uniform numbers that are wide and contrasting uh, from your jersey color, because we do want to get the stats right. And it's a lot easier when we can read the numbers. Uh, Colleen, I want to go to you just about using student staff. So many of our members are relying on students uh, to run their stat crew on game day. What are some of the things you're telling them as someone in your role to prepare hourly game day staff for these positions? Yeah, I um, I start, I have a, a crew of all student workers and I start from the very first game and I put them on a computer. If they're gonna do stats, I'll put them on the computer and I'll be their caller. And I start with um, calling out the keystrokes until you know we we go through there i'll give them the keystrokes they type it in as i go once they you know learn a little bit what's happening i'll transition into calling the play and then i'll move that person into a calling position and train the next person as an inputter so that i get multiple students going um, know how to do stats for for all of our teams um, pretty quickly that way one thing that Jill mentioned a moment ago is participation. I just want to circle back on that real quick for those who haven't done that before or kind of have been surprised by it the last couple of weeks or maybe it pops up. It's just something, you know, Jill, maybe you want to go into a little bit more about just having, knowing what your plan is at the start of the game so you don't look each other at halftime and be like, oh, I thought you were doing it. Sure. So um, I will say, you know, a lot of places do it differently. Some people have uh, someone at the table that is tracking participation, especially if um, some some setups, the, the benches are opposite of the press box. Um, so it's easier sometimes for that kid at the table that's maybe doing the, the carding sheet um, to kind of just mark kids off as they go. And the biggest thing I will say is do not try to sub on the fly. Um, just mark mark off tick them off as they as they come in um, and then you can just update it at the end if they didn't actually record any statistics um, and I, I will say also as well um, if you have a student at the table or someone at the table that's doing the participation make sure that they know that they're doing the participation we had a game earlier this year with um, I asked if they needed me to do it and they said no we have a student at the table that'll do it and the student didn't know they were doing it um, so when they came up at the end of the game they had not done the participation um, and I'll also say if, if you have a visiting SID that's in the box with you, um, sometimes it's easier for them to do the participation because they know their kids um, better than you do. And, you know, what they they know, 
who the, who the players are without having to look at their number and it's much easier for them. So I would say um, take advantage if there's a visiting SID um, in the box with you to take advantage of their kind of expertise on their own team. Um, one is an extra set of eyes, but also helping with participation. And you mentioned having someone at a table or communicating downstairs. That person is also really important for communication with the officials. And, you know, Stephen, something we talked about was making sure that that person or whether it's you up top, regardless of what your setup is, that the officials know who they're supposed to be going to on certain things. A absolutely. The one thing our we make sure our crew does our clock and our possession clock person, scoreboard operator, they go down pregame and they make sure they introduce themselves to all three of the officials uh, and point out to where we are. So they need to put hand signals up or where to look. Um, it's really important for a number of reasons. And especially we all do it at basketball games. The officials, there's interaction between the scores table and the officials at basketball. This is no different. Uh, we do it uh, so they know who they're talking to. If obviously if clock changes or any type of other changes. And it's just really kind of, it familiarizes the officials with who, who needs to make the edits upstairs and whether it's clock or otherwise or cards. Uh, but it's really important that you kind of uh, get them uh, knowledgeable of who you are, where you are, and where that information needs to be relayed to. And for some schools, that person at the table is overseeing alternating possession and the arrow at some schools. Just knowing between the communication staff and the facility staff, who is overseeing the arrow, what is the device you're using, those sorts of things, making sure some of your own internal communications are happening as well so you don't get out there on game day and you're missing certain items that are needed. A horn, you know, certain things here and there that just making sure you know who within your department um, is handling that. I want to kind of switch gears here a little bit. We're getting into the start of the game. We're getting into gameplay and just talking about, you know, something very basic of just the rules and the rule differences. You know, I think I've seen this a lot, various places I've been where, you know, especially schools that have men's and women's lacrosse. And, you know, if you are using certain programs where you have to make sure those rules are set differently, just some of that sort of stuff about knowing the differences between the men's and the women's game and also being able to speak up about those differences. Stephen, I want to go to you on that. Yeah. Uh, the most important thing I can say after 25 years of covering the sport and uh, I've known Jill for quite a few years in that time too, as well as uh, be an advocate for the sport and be a supporter of the sport. If you're on this call, you're obviously somebody who supports women's across, but don't just support it, be an advocate for it. The, Men's and women's lacrosse are only similar in one way, that they have the same word associated with them, lacrosse. Every, there's so many other aspects of the sports are different, and just be an advocate. So if there's somebody in the press box who makes the you know the normal freeze tag joke, be it, be an advocate for the sport and kind of talk about the sport and why it's different and, way, and ways that it is better or different. Um, and just kind of be an advocate and explain the rules, be an advocate – in uh, defending it if need be, and just kind of be an advocate for women's lacrosse as a whole uh, and kind of showcasing what is so great about this sport and why it differs from men's lacrosse and, and in the major ways it does. You're getting into some of those rule differences and Kalina, I want to talk about draw controls and, you know, something that is one of those very different things between men's and women's lacrosse and just having an understanding of what is the draw and who is recording the draw for whom. Yeah, so um, one of the first mistakes I ever made as a SID was getting uh, men's lacrosse and women's lacrosse confused in the stat software. So this is something that I've had experience doing. Um, draw control, you know, 
it doesn't go to the person taking the draw unless they receive possession of the ball once the draw is complete. Um, that you have your your two people in the middle and whoever takes possession of the ball once play starts is who actually earns that draw control. And I, one thing I've seen a lot recently is people will give the draw control, but also then give a ground ball to the person that picks it up. And that is actually not the case. Like the draw control is the draw control. That's a stat by itself. They do not get a ground ball with it as well. One additional thing to throw in on that with some of our rule changes in the sport over the last couple of years, the opportunity to player up at the start of a quarter. Now there are quarters and things of that nature. Uh, just being aware of a team starting with possession in the quarter and being aware of that. So, yeah, if um, if uh, there's a um, woman up, if they uh, you've got a power play and play at the end of the quarter, then there will not be a draw at the middle and the team that had possession will continue to have. And I want to stay with you to talk about clears and, you know, clearing the ball and what's a clear win is a failed clear, not a failed clear. You know, there, there's some various elements to this. And, you know, we see it early in the season where clearing percentage just sometimes doesn't look right after we look at a box score and just kind of going through some of those details of what makes it a clear and also talking about um, the clear when you're woman down. Yeah, so um, a clearing attempt is occurs when a team has possession of the ball behind their defensive restraining line and they make it to their attacking position. Um, I was reading through the the stats manual to refresh my my memory today on and get it exactly right. Um, a failed clear must have a team or an individual turnover charged. So if they do not get to an attacking position, then that will be a turnover on that team. Um, I know depending on the stat software that you're using, um, whether it prompts you for a failed turnover or a failed clear, and then it'll ask, was it a clear, yes, no, or a turnover? Um, and then you proceed to give the turnover to the person who didn't make it. Um, and then a, a successful clear is when they get all the way into their attacking position and they are ready to go. And then, um, Jill, I don't know if you want to go into this a little bit about when is a failed clear, not a failed clear? When you are a woman down, it is a turnover. Um, but so when, when you have a failed clear, you obviously do the, the failed clear and it, it credits you with a, a team with a failed clear and a turnover because you're playing a woman down. You don't want to double penalize that team. Um, if they're successful, it is a successful clear. But if they uh, it's not a successful clear, you just credit them with a turnover. You don't also also penalize them with a with a failed clear. Jill, want to stay with you here to talk about fouls a little bit and something that I think a lot of people have been figuring out a little more this year and, and kind of keeping an eye on is just how are you giving fouls? What is a foul? What goes in the system as a foul versus what goes in the system as something else? Yeah, that's a good question. I've been watching women's across for a long time and there's still sometimes I'm not sure what's a foul and what's not a foul. Um, it, it's It's been a little more difficult in the last few years with some of the changes they've made to the game with not having to to stop and then the player gets moved four yards behind. Um, a lot of times there's the whistle and if the player with the ball that was fouled just keeps going, like she can just keep, there's instances where they have to stop and freeze um, and wait for play to restart on the on the official signal. Um, but most of the time they're allowed to just keep going. So sometimes it can be very difficult to tell who's, sometimes it's obvious if it's an open field of play and there's an attacking player and defensive player and the ref blows the whistle, it's pretty clear who the foul is on. Um, in the instance where there's multiple defensive players around that player, if you 
if you couldn't tell who caused the foul, you know, give it to team, you know, try to use your best judgment of who you thought um, was the foul. Um, I, I wouldn't just assign it willy nilly. If you're not, if you just are a hundred percent, not, you know, if you're just not sure, just don't give it to one player because you feel like you have to assign it to an individual player. You can give it to a team. Um, and then there's the yellow cards um, and green cards, which there are, are, have been a lot of with, again, with the rule changes um, in women's across um, do not enter them as a penalty It is different from men's across. It is, you know, it's similar to soccer where there's a, there's actually a yellow card and a green card. Uh, the green card is one minute, uh, yellow card is two minutes, and then a red card, which I knock on wood have not seen, uh, is a five minute non-releasable. Um, and you would enter again, enter all those as a card, not as a penalty. Um, and then if you were to, the team were to score, that is a man up or a man down, um, man, man down goal. Um, one note with the yellow card. So a red card is an automatic non-releasable five minute. The yellow card, once a team gets to their fourth yellow card, the fourth yellow card and any subsequent yellow card is a two-minute non-releasable. Awesome. A lot of important stuff on cards there. And as we alluded to, there have been some significant changes uh, with the rules for cards this year. So one of those situations of, like so many other things, have something printed out, have those details printed out at your, your in your press box, wherever you're working from during the game. Uh, so you have the knowledge to be able to get through these as we're all to an extent learning some of these new rules. We got a couple questions that have come in that I want to get to. I see one or two that are actually things we're going to get to in a little bit, but there's two I want to circle back on and one pertaining to draw controls and um, the topic of on the draw, there's a foul called or on the draw, someone goes early. How is that scored? Um, so on the draw control, when there is a foul um, who I was again, reading up on this earlier today, um, the whoever the official gives the ball to to start play is who actually gets the draw control. And then one on clearing. Uh, Sorry, I had one thing. I just want we have a we have a a player uh, that kind of goes to this as well. Um, who's a we'll call her a Fogo. She takes a draw and she runs off the field. In those instances where it's a foul between the two players taking the draw, like the kid taking the draw, because sometimes it's an offensive player that will come and and take the ball. Um, in the instance where you have a player who is a draw specialist that takes the draw and then immediately runs off the field, that player would get the draw if she's the one that's fouled and maybe another player that picks up the ball. Um, but there are plenty of instances where you have a, a player who is not a draw specialist who will then, um, as Kalina said, get the get the draw. Um, and that player obviously does get the draw. Sorry, that's a little bit of a confusion right there. That's a really good thing to clarify. Thank you, Jill. Uh, one uh, thing relating well, to... I'll get back to the cards. Uh <laughs> We can circle back on the cards. The uh, correct me if I'm wrong. The two two yellows. That person is ejected from the game. Yes, if a player and, gets two yellow cards, they are they are done. They can for be the rest of the game. They can be replaced. Like correct. They can be replaced, but they are they are done for the rest of the game. Yeah. Thank you. On the topic of clears, uh, one thing that was brought up here: mm -hmm. you have a situation where the player wins possession of the ball outside of the defensive third and in the midfield controls controls the ball then goes back into the defensive third not by their momentum of bringing the ball with them but they choose to go into the defensive third is that a clearing attempt Jill I don't know if you want to take this one or I can take that I've always done that I as thinking 
I've, I've always done that as a clear. I, I take a similar situation of yeah. um, uh, if you win the ball on, on the draw and you and sometimes you either throw it back to one of your defenders or to your goalie if they're up high um, or if you, you just end up running back below the restraining line. I've always viewed that as a clear because one, to me, once you take it below the restraining line and then you're trying to move up into your offensive third, like to me, that's a clear. I've also done the same. Me too. I agree 100%. We're going to get to a few more of your questions in just a little bit. We do have a couple of topics coming up that are going to answer some of those. And we want to talk about turnovers and talking about, you know, when is a turnover also a cause turnover? Uh, how are you determining which player is charged with the turnover? And clean? I want to start with you on this about when does a turnover have a cause? Why does a cause turnover have to have a turnover first? And also, how do you determine who turned it over? Man, got hit me all at once. All right. So, um, you know, a cause turnover is when a player's, a defensive player's actions directly cause the offensive player or the player with the ball to lose control. And then that would be that player then gets the turnover. The cause is on the player whose actions determined or caused the turnover. And then you moving forward, you go with, um, who I guess picks up the ball, gets the ground ball. But um, it's they're very it's very interesting. Um, I, these are like one of my favorites. But it's not a cause turnover if say I'm I'm going down the field and I throw the ball out of bounds. That's not a cause turnover. Um, now if somebody if a defensive player maneuvers their offensive player outside of bounds for a turnover, then I would grant that's what I when I would grant a cause turnover turnover to the player who um, made that player go out of bounds. Um, and then when a player intercepts a ball, so if I'm passing and I, my ball is intercepted, I've got a turnover, the defensive player gets a cause turnover and the ground ball um, on that one. And that's the biggest one that I see people kind of miss the ground yeah. ball part. Yeah. Yep. So it the ground ball doesn't have to be on the ground to be considered a ground ball. Um, that was a, if I'm intercepting the ball, that's a pretty good play and they deserve that all the way. One thing on the, the cause turnover element, just uh, thinking back to about 10 years ago when I had to walk up to Jill's office after a game and ask for about five more cause turnovers based on the concept of the player was standing there and she dropped the ball. So that that is not a cause turnover, but we always appreciate uh, those defensive coaches who are making a, a case for their players as um the presence of a player standing there. If the play, player causes you to drop the ball, yes, but um, merely a poor judgment by the player does not institute a cause turnover. No. Uh, one question here, uh, with coaches organization asking for fouls to be assigned to individuals as much as possible, should we be guessing more often? And I will answer that one myself. The answer I will give is no, we should not be incorrectly issuing stats based, based on a recommendation from a group. Yeah, and I think like if you're if you're really not sure, again, like sometimes it is obvious where there's there's one attacking player, one defensive player. Um, but again, if there if there's more than one defensive player there or it's an off ball foul, um, I I would not guess. Just give it to give it to team. Um, that's acceptable. Um, speaking of off ball fouls, um, I'll just trying just, I'm not sure if you, when you were going to get there, Miles, um, we, we do a lot of, um, 
picks and screens on our offense, and we tend to get called for moving picks and moving screens. It, it's the same as basketball. The official will basically put their hands on their hips and then point the other way. In that instance, like if we've had a couple instances where we've taken a shot as the official has called uh, a moving pick. And in that case, like it's just like basketball if there was an offensive foul. Um, there's no missed shot. It's just a turnover on the player that had that set the moving pick. And again, like, that can sometimes if it happens, if it's way off ball and you don't see it, um, that can be hard, hard to do. And again, I would just give a team turnover. I wouldn't try to figure out who it was unless you have the stream up and you see it. Um, but, you know, nine times out of 10, if, if you have the ball and all of a sudden the ref blows a whistle and everybody's going the other way, it was it was probably an off ball foul. It was probably a moving pick. Jill, I want to stay with you to talk about uh, some of the rules regarding shots and saves. And, you know, one thing that's come up a couple of times here in the questions is ground balls related to shot attempts. I think anyone who has been involved in other sports similar to lacrosse in terms of shooting on a goal understands what's a shot, what's a save, those sorts of things. But I want to kind of focus on some of the lacrosse specific things of, you know, how are things credited on a ground ball off a shot? both for a player retaining possession or for a goalkeeper and going through those different elements. Sure. Um, this was actually a rule change they the women made a few years ago. It used to be in women's across, you could only get a ground ball on a, you know, the, a change of possession, which is actually still the rule, but they consider a shot a change of possession. Um, but before they made kind of that change, you could only get a really get a ground ball defensively. Um, and I felt like if, if I took a shot and the goalie makes a save and then my teammate picks up the ball and keeps possession for my team, she should be rewarded for that. Um, so that is that is the instance. If I, if I shoot and Steven makes the save but doesn't control the ball and the ball comes back out of the crease um, and a defender or an offensive player picks up the ball, that that's a ground ball. If I shoot and miss the cage completely, which would be normal, uh, and two players are running it out, whoever gets possession of the possession for their team, that's not a ground ball. Unless you, if you pick it up, but if you're just running the ball out and your team is awarded possession because you are closest to the end line when the ball goes out, that is not a ground ball. Um, for goalies, goalies can get ground balls, but not if it's in the circle because no one, an offensive player cannot reach into the crease. They can't, an offensive player cannot contest in the crease. So if a goalie makes a save, and then picks the ball up in the crease, that is not a ground ball. The ball comes out and the goalie reaches out and picks it up, that would be a ground ball. Um, with that, if a defender pushes the ball into the crease, give the ground ball to the defender. Because um, again, like once the ground ball's in the, once the ball's in the, the crease, a, an offensive player can't reach in there, that would be a turnover. Ken, um, I've seen, we we give a ground, um, recently I've seen a lot of, for our on our team at least, um, the goalie will intercept passes. And so I will then give her the ground ball for that one um, and the cause turnover. Yeah. And I think sometimes too, in some of those situations where um, if the, the player is straight on, it's kind of sometimes maybe making that determination of and using your best judgment, was the player shooting or were they passing to somebody that maybe was behind the goal and the goalie intercepted it? Um, right. I mean, either way, the goal maybe would get a save um, or a cause turnover and a, uh, and a ground ball. Uh, but I think, on some of those situations, uh, you know, using your best judgment, was that a shot or was that a pass? Um, and, and the people on this call, we cannot emphasize this enough. If you weren't really listening closely for the last three minutes about ground balls, this is the difference between the sports. Um, men, you drop the ball, pick it up, you get a ground ball. You know, there's it's very lax. Uh, 
pardon the pun. Uh, but the women's lacrosse rule is very specific in how it is. Uh, and there's any questions like, if I go look at the national stats right now, I sh- probably shouldn't see somebody with 10 or more ground balls in a game. It's just, it's not, the sport just really is not made like that right now where somebody can get that many. Uh, so if you, if you didn't really listen closely the last three minutes, replay the uh, webinar so you can hear more about the, the ground ball rules. Uh, I will also say, I just saw a question in here about, about ground balls um, in the Q and a, um, if two players are going for the ball and a player gets fouled, like you can give, even though she might actually pick up the ball because the official blew the play dead and, and um, called a foul, you would give that player credit for that ground ball, even though they didn't technically pick it up because they were fouled and couldn't pick it up. Awesome. Thanks, Jill. And um, yeah, as Steven said, uh, we will have a recording. We will have a webinar recording. We will have podcast recordings. I definitely recommend as you get ready for your games this week, this weekend, uh, to go back through some of these details, especially related to ground balls and some of these specific rules. One thing I want to get into here is assists and the determination on assists, how it varies from other sports, how there is not the guarantee of an assist. And I'm going to go to Steven to start this one, who I know has always been um, in agreement with me on 100% of assists over the course of our careers. And uh, we'll get Steven's take on how to start with this. Uh, There is only one assist. uh, And the assist must lead to the goal. Like, I I don't know. There's not a definitive way I could tell anybody this, but uh, there must be a conscious effort. It might even say that in the rule book. Does it say that, actually? by the uh, passer to lead to that goal. Uh, So if the person passes it out and person takes two steps and dodges a defender, there's no assist anymore. That person has now created their own shot. Um, I I would argue in some ways it's very similar to basketball, but uh, use your own judgment, but use your own judgment for both teams. and again, it must be a conscious effort by that passer to lead to that goal. And that goal was scored because that uh, pass led to that goal. I don't know and how. Don't, yeah, go ahead. And don't let your coaches bully you into making yeah. changes because they will try. That goes for everything. <laughs> There's a long list. Um, but. I want to get back to that topic in just a moment, actually, uh, of post-game stat changes and everything. But one thing in the in-game I really want to stay with here uh, that will sometimes pop up is uh, overtime. And I apologize for anyone I just spoke it into existence for this upcoming week. I am truly sorry. Uh, but talking about, Stephen, I want to talk about setting up overtime, knowing the overtime rules. What is overtime versus double overtime? Knowing not only from a statistics standpoint, but just from a general rules of the game standpoint. Yeah, I actually got and got, I personally got confused last week on our preparation call. So overtime is six minutes. Each overtime is six minutes. It is two three-minute periods. That The two three-minute periods are the first overtime. The team's – the clock – you set your stadium clock for three minutes. At the end of the first three minutes, you are still in the first overtime. The team's the switch ends. So, any, so everything else just stays. Still the first overtime. It is sudden victory. So if somebody scores with one minute left in the first three minutes, there was actually – four minutes on the clock, if that makes sense. Um, But 
it is sudden victory, and the six minutes is not two overtimes. It is one overtime. So if I see a box score with had went into second overtime, it didn't because the two three-minute periods are the first overtime. Uh, it is, it's the one thing about the sport that I think is a little overly confusing. Uh, I'm not here to make the change. I'm just here to administer it. So, um, but again, I will reiterate two, three minute periods are the, the two first three minute periods are the first overtime. If it is still scoreless after that, then you go into a second overtime of the same similar nature. Uh, again, sudden victory of, uh, Again, and the term is sudden victory, not sudden death. Again, these are ways be an advocate for the sport. Again, sudden victory. Uh, again, sudden victory, two three-minute periods equal one overtime. So, and I think, um, sorry, um, when you're setting up the game, and again, I, I we use Stat Crew. I, I don't use Presto, but I imagine it's similar is making sure when it, it can be easy to kind of fly past that screen when you're setting up and making sure if you have men's and women's across that the overtime is set at six minutes, not four minutes like the men. Very important. Same thing in Presto does that too. And if you are someone who has the power to make that will make a little more sense, we uh, we open our line of communication to you and are happy to have those discussions in the offseason. Uh, but that is a lot of the things I wanted to cover about the in-game things. We are coming close to coming up on time to make sure we still get, on, get in some more of your questions as well. Just a reminder, we'll have a recording of this. We will have some ways to review this. Um, so you have it as a resource throughout the season, which is what we're trying to do with a lot of these uh, stat-based webinars. But you know, one thing that I do want to get to, and we've had a couple questions pop up about this as well, is coaches asking for stat changes. And it is something that happens as a conference communications co contact. I think I had one game uh, middle of the week that I got five separate files for. Uh, so some of it, is you got to get it right. Some of it is, you know, participation, potential red shirt, you know, those sorts of things. That is always something that is paramount to get right. But one thing that has become, I think, more and more prevalent is coaches going back post-game, looking at stats and saying, well, we missed these six saves or we missed these five cause turnovers. And, you know, kind of looking at that and, having a policy for how you're going to handle it with your coaching staff, also having a policy for how you're going to check it yourself to make sure that you're not just going on the word of, hey, can you add these six saves? Because that's not really how it works. Jill, I want to start with you on this and then go to Kalina as well, just about, you know, kind of policies to have in place internally and also with your opponents. Sure. Um, one thing, I, whenever our coaches have asked for a stat change, I always tell them to clip it and send me, if they're using their coach's film, to send me the timestamp um, so that I'm not the one having to go look for it. And then it makes it easier. Um, and then I will look at it. They'll send me a clip like, hey, we thought our goalie had 12 saves, not 10. And they will send me the 12 clips and I will take a look at them um, with the timestamps of when of when the shots and um and the saves happen and I'll take a look at them. And if I look at them and think like, whether it was home or on the road, um, if I look at them and say, no, that was not a save, or, you know what, I think that actually was a save. I will then, if we were on the road, I will email the host SID and say, Hey, um, you know, we, we thought there should have been a save on this shot. Here's the clip. 
Um, and as we talked about on our prep call, like always be polite at the end of the day, like the home SID is the official score and it's, it's up to their, it's their decision of whether they want to make the change or not. Um, so I, I always preface it with like, it's your call. I looked at it. I think this should be a save and, and leave it at that and, and make it as a, a polite request, not a, Hey, make these changes. Um, cause again, at the end of the day, like I, hopefully we all want to get it right. Um, but, you know, things happen. You know, we had a, a home game last week where I missed two saves for our goalie. There was one where I thought it was just a turnover. When I looked at the clip in slow motion, I was like, wow, that that attacker actually caught the ball on the crease and got the shot off. And then, then there was a loose ball scramble after that. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, I I, I don't I want to say don't take offense if someone emails you and, and asks for some changes. Um, because I think at the end of the day, we all want to get it right for the for the player's sake. Um but again, if it's if you're the visiting SID, be polite, make it, you know, ask, don't demand they make these changes. Um, but again, I, I put the onus on your coaches of like, hey, send me the clip, send me the timestamp of what in the play, play it happened. And then again, if you're if you're the visiting SID, I, to, to take a look at it. And if you think it if you think it shouldn't be a stat change, then I just I wouldn't even send it to the visiting SID. I would just tell your coach like, hey, I, I, I disagree. I don't think that was a save or I don't think that should be an assist. And um, hopefully they'll respect you and trust you that you, you know. And I've had instances where I've actually I've had discussions with my coaches of like, this is how I saw it. And that, I think that's how they scored it. And they're like, okay, that makes sense. So I think it's just having that dialogue with your coach and explaining, you know, sometimes coaches see things differently than we do from a stat perspective and just having that conversation explaining to you know why it wasn't a cost turnover why you don't think it was a shot or and one of the big ones with that is the shot shot on goal uh coaches have a different uh, understanding of what it actually is a shot on goal um so sometimes it's educating your coaches on the rules if it's a post what does that mean um and just kind of they might think oh our goalie had 19 saves well really it was like eight because um, they think that something else is a save. So it's kind of, there's also an education part to your coaches if you can handle that as well. Stephen, one question while you're on that very topic, and I want to get to you, Kalina, with a question, but Stephen, on the situation of a goalie making a save on a shot that is off target from the cage. So you've got a shot off to the right of the cage, goalie goes out to the side, make the save. This is a question we had in the chat, just how to score that. So sh shot, not going to go into the goal? Not going to go into the goal. Goalie stays in the crease, but goalie sticks out her, her stick to, to grab it. Uh, not a save. The, the goalie is not saving it. The goalie's goal, goal in the game is ultimately to stop a shot from going into the goal. Otherwise, they're just catching a ball that's in the air. Is that the easiest way? Is, to that, is that a ground ball in that situation? What is the yes. way that would be scored? That would be a ground ball. Ground ball. Um, but yeah, ultimately don't overthink it. it if the shot wasn't going to go into the net, then it's not a save. Uh, cause ultimately the save is defined as stopping a shot from going into the net. One thing I want to get to and clean, I'm going to go to you on a question is I think Jill made a really good point about if an opposing school reaches out to you for a stat correction or a series of stat corrections, we are all, all of us in our roles around the country are all trying to do the same thing for our student athletes. We're all trying to do the same thing for our programs and our universities and our conferences. Just bring yourself to not take it personally. Bring yourself to not make it a, I want to be right type thing. I think that's something that some of us um, 
were guilty of early in our careers, I think. And as time goes on, we realize we all have a common goal to support our student athletes. And we also know that the person asking at the other school likely doesn't want to be asking that anyway, much of the time. So just having that in mind, I think definitely helps. We're all human and we're going to, you know, we're not going to see everything all the time. Helena, one question I want to go to you on that we got here in the chat uh, from a program that is in its second or third year and every game the coaching staff has staff corrections. And is that a thing to be expected with a newer program? Is that a thing to be expected in general or is that, you know, maybe and it's tough without having a little more context on the question. I don't know if it's participation or assists or what it is, like how much of that is normal to on a game by game basis have that going on? Uh, well, for me, it's been normal for a little while. Um, it just, it really depends on your coach um, and, and your, your communication with your coach. You know, I feel very lucky that I, I sit down with all of my field coaches prior to the start of the season. And I, we talk about the expectations of stack corrections and, you know, we, you know, what we see versus what they see. And um, so it, it, it literally, it, it's hit or miss based on coaching staff. Um, I think with a new program, they're probably pushing to get their players the stats. Um, and if we miss something, you know, you know, it is what it is. So I wouldn't get offended by it. I know it can be frustrating as an SID to get that every game. Um, but I agree with Jill, have the coach give the clip, say, hey, this is where I think it is. Make them work a little bit more for it and see if they actually want that change or if they just think they can get it because, you know, they are a new program and um, they're getting the extra you know, attention at the moment. And I would say too, um, if they're they're sending you, and if it's a lot of changes, and like you're looking at you're looking at them and saying like that is not an assist, that is not a save, that is, and it, it's, you know, seventy five percent of what they're sending you is is just completely wrong. I think it, you know maybe it's time to have a conversation with that coach and be like, look, every week you're sending me you know fifteen stat changes, and fourteen of them are not right, and the week before it was twelve stat changes, and eleven of them were not correct, like. You know, it's time to have that conversation of maybe yeah. the coach needs to spend their time doing something else and not going back and reviewing and and doing maybe they job. just don't know the stat rules that I, I've I've learned in, in a lot of sports. Sometimes coaches and players don't actually know this. To, they don't know the stat rules, they know the rules of the game, but they don't know how games are actually statted. So, um, and you know, and in the, the end, sorry, Joe. No, go ahead. In the end, you're the official stat keeper. Like if you if you think you know you've got it right, then. You know, you you can do everything you can to talk to your coach about it. But at, at the end of the day, like it comes down to you're the one that that makes those official just those final decisions. And, you know, your stats are the ones going out to the conference and to your governing body. So, you know, you you stick with what you feel is correct um, because that's you know, it's it's on you. It's on us um, as the SIDs and the stats people to to make sure we you know we're doing the best for us for the sport and you know one thing i have here in the chat uh if you see someone who is doing a stat incorrectly halfway throughout the year and they lead the country in that stat who do you reach out to especially if they are not in your conference and i'll answer this one and suggest that um you may have the option of sending them this webinar and you may have the option of uh, helping them along through that. But I will say from a conference person standpoint, 
I don't think there are many people who would ask a school to re-input half its games based on a rules interpretation. And I think that's why this is so important. That's why getting this stuff right in February is so important. So we can do this correctly. You know, I, I see this sometimes with, I check the NCAA stat page every week as I'm doing my game notes. And there are ones you look at and you're like, there was last week, there was a team that was averaging 0.7 fouls per game. And I was like, that is a team I have watched play a lot. That is not possible. Uh, and I think those sorts of things are why we need these calls and, and why we need to. And Stephen, I want to go to you because like making sure we're not in these situations in March, April and May. Yeah. The, again, I, it's really an unfortunate situation more than anything. If it gets to April or late March and you see that the I personally would not ever reach out if I saw Jill was doing stats terribly. I would never reach out to Jill. I just think don't think that's what we would do. Really? Here's what I would do. <laughs> well, if it's Jill, you... <laughs> I'm using Jill as an example. Uh, here's what I would do, though. The only situation where I might say something to somebody, though, is if we played at Johns Hopkins and I just and one of our kids had 15 ground balls uh, in the game. I, I might say, hey, and Jill was in her second year <laughs> at Hopkins. I might say, hey, Jill, have you just want to make sure you've read this stat manual? I wasn't watching the game, but. 15 ground balls for our player seems like a really high number. Just to make sure you understand the ground ball rule. Uh, and I'm that was that would be the extent of how I would handle it. I, it's a very, like I said, difficult situation if you know somebody's not doing it correctly, but that's maybe the softest way I could recommend. To clarify, I was being somewhat facetious and in, in suggesting to send them the stats webinar. No, but, and I've, I've actually had that conversation um, in press boxes when I've been at a game and noticed that they're not calling the ground bowl. And, and this hasn't happened as much recently. I think it was more of when women's across made this, the change to give ground balls on to the offensive player on a, on a, on a shot or a save. Um, I've had that conversation be like, actually, that's actually not the rule anymore. They changed that rule. Um, so I think, I think in the, yeah, I think in the instance, I, I have not been afraid to have that conversation um, and, and correct that. Um, but I, I would be hesitant to reach out to somebody. I mean, I might look at them side, sideways, but uh, yeah, that's that's kind of a delicate situation. Yeah, And I think at the end of the day, something like a stat ranking is not going to be the best use of your time to battle over something when you can better be using that time, especially for so many of our members who are dealing with this, who also are dealing with six or seven other sports, if not more in February. And it, it goes back to that element of we all are trying and we all are trying to do the best we can. I want to get back to one thing here because we are coming up on time, which is, you know, kind of the moments where things go haywire and, you know, putting yourself in position to be uh, successful when things go wrong, when a computer freezes up, when the internet goes out, you know, those sorts of things that um, when they happen seem a little frantic, but how can you put yourself in position to be successful? Jill, I want to start with you on this, just talking about, you know, solutions for one, um, having backup uh, and whether that's written backup or video backup, and also two, um, for when you just miss a play. Yeah, so I will say, uh, and I should have mentioned this earlier when we were talking about setup. Um, I always have a pad of paper, and I always, I always write down every goal and card in in case there's ever an issue, like the stack computer freezes, or in the instance of like, especially now with some of the women's across rules, multiple cards of 
um, remembering what the time was and it, was that a woman up goal? Was it a woman down goal? Were, were we even? Um, and, and again, at the end of the day, like if something were to happen, the computer were to die, um, or it would crash or the, we just magically lose the file at the end of the day, I would have a scoring summary and, you know, you, you could build the rest of the file. Um, I'm also old and used to writing things down. So, um, again, like I, I write everything down. I'll, sometimes I'll make notes as well. Like, um, you know, on that turnover late in the first quarter, I think I got that, I think I got that number wrong and I'll make a note to myself to go back and check it. Um, again, that's why I have this stream up. And if I know there was a crazy sequence, um, I'll hit pause on the stream. Now we have a, we have the DVR function on our stream, but I always just hit pause because it's easier. And then if there's, you know, between quarters or if there's a timeout, I'll go back and, and look at that. Um, to make sure again that we get it right. But I will say the biggest thing um, is to just keep calling. Um, if you know there was a crazy sequence, you know, cause sometimes you can have, you know, a, a turnover and a cost turnover and a ground ball, and then there's a clear, and then there's a turnover on the clear and there's the cost turnover and then the ground ball and trying to keep all of that straight. And I think it's easier to, to just keep calling. Um, you can always go back and, and edit a number. It's sometimes it's, it, it's easier to edit a number if you put the wrong one in, then to try to insert plays. Um, and sometimes that just goes back to hopefully your your uh, your inputter is good and can keep up with if you're just calling if there's a crazy sequence. Um, but again, I, I think the biggest thing is to, to the, the, they're going to keep playing on the field unless there was a foul or some sort of stoppage. They're, the play is going to keep going. Um, and, you know, with most people streaming games, you can always go back and check the video um, if you need to. But I would say it, it, just keep going. Um, you can always edit the stats later. Um, and sometimes there'll be situations where I'll tell someone if, especially if it's not a situation where there's a clear and I didn't, I know there was a cost turnover, but I cannot read that girl's number. I don't know what number she is. I will tell someone, I'll tell my PA, hey, keep an eye on that blonde girl with the knee brace. When you see her number, let me know what her number was because the play is going to go this way and I can't watch what's going on. Um, so I think that's what helps is, you know, kind of pull in the people that you have in the box to kind of help you out and be those extra set of eyes where you can say, Hey, can you see that the girl with the brown hair and the black cleats? Can you see what her number is? Um, you know, we're all in this together and I think, you know, take advantage of the people that you have. Um, I would also say maybe try not to panic, um, which is sometimes easier said than done if, you know, your computer dies or the printer dies or, um, or, or whatever, um, but that that would be my advice. Hopefully that was helpful. And Jill does reference the most difficult play to input. It's the clearing attempt, failed clear, cause turnover, turnover, ground ball. I, I think I've probably written that one in some way, shape, or form a thousand times. Mm -hmm. That's probably the best one. You just don't even bother inputting in the time. You might just want to write it first because there's literally, I think you have five inputs and they all need the same time stamp and they all, so just, be ready for that because it happens regularly. And that's the one, that's probably the most difficult input you're going to have in women's lacrosse. Sorry, um, I just thought of something with ground balls because this has happened a couple of times too, where um, I, I look at it as a situation similar to basketball, where if a player tips a controlled tip out, if we had a situation the other day where a defender was running after the, she had knocked the ball away and she went and she flipped it back and one of our other players picked it up, I gave that kid the ground ball. Because to me, like she gained, she kept she, one. She kept it in play, but she really, so she she did the work on that one. Um, and I, I look at that as like a basketball in a situation where you're tipping the ball out. You know, if you if it's a controlled tip, you know you're going to give that offensive 
or defensive rebound to the player that tipped it. Um, I would do the same with a with a ground ball. Same, a similar situation I mentioned earlier with the defender pushing the ball into the crease for the goalie. Um, give that give that player the ground ball. A couple questions in the chat that I'm going to knock out here real quick. One, uh, when you're referring to the stat manual, do you mean the rule book or is there a different publication for that? There is a stat manual specific to most sports, women's across being one of them. And a couple questions, that one and a couple others regarding, um, you know, where to send stuff to the NCA, things like that. A really good resource if you are new to covering a sport, uh, team sport, uh, lacrosse being one of them. Uh, if you are an NCA member, uh, I can tell you that NCA.org, uh, if you go to that main page under Media Center, there is a statistics and records link. And if you are new to covering a sport like lacrosse, that is going to be one of your most helpful links in all the world. Uh, it is one that I still use on a daily basis 12 years in uh, and something that we use for so many purposes, NCA stat rankings, all of those things as well. Um, but, you know, another great resource is, you know, if you are not a one person shop, don't don't hesitate to ask your boss. Don't hesitate to, you know, not try to do it all alone and also you know use your conference office as a resource and use people who uh have been doing it a little while longer as this group has been so kind to do today and uh to give your to get expertise from them and be able to learn from them just as so many of us did early in our careers um miles go ahead steven uh just you referenced the ncaa statistics yeah. manual i print it out every year and i read it every year and I think you both referenced it as well. I'm 20 plus years in doing women's across, and I still like, oh, maybe this was different. This is this rule has changed, or excuse me, this, this statistics way has changed. It, it's really important to read it because one, it's not a lot of pages, so you're not wasting tons of hours reading it. And it really, it actually gives a ton of examples of how to, uh, and it, and they're everyday examples. They're not far fetched examples. It's ones that you're gonna see. And you'll know exactly what to input uh, in those plays. And it, again, it's not a lot of pages and it's easy to read uh, and explains everything very simply. Uh, thankful to the people who put it together years ago and have continued to improve it. Another, go ahead, Jill. Oh, I was just going to say, I have that uh, statistics page bookmarked on my computer. Um, is It's a great resource for um, stat manuals, um, record books, like all that kind of stuff that, that, is a great resource to have. And the NAI has a page as well. Um, if you go to the, if you're in the NAI, you go to four members and then um, down the right-hand side, there's all sorts of resources um, for the same, the same type of thing. Yeah, I think it's just really important to remember that there are a lot of resources out there. There are a lot of resources out there online, uh, webinars such as this, and the people who have been doing this job who maybe have a little more experience in the cross or have been dealing with your conference office or your league or your coaching staff a little longer, and just to lean on them as resources as we all just, you know, we all just really try to, to get it right for our student athletes and our programs. And as Steven so aptly put early on, just be advocates for the sport and how important that is. We are coming up on time here and any last final thoughts, uh, Jill, Kalina, Steven, anything you'd like to add? Uh, don't, I mean, you know, this is a great webinar for everybody, um, but don't, don't hesitate to reach out to your colleagues if you have questions. Um, I did that early on in my career a lot. 
Um, and even when I moved into a new conference and a new school, you know, I was reaching out to the people that had been in the conference for, you know, a number of years just to, to ask for, you know, oh, what about this? Uh, what does the conference do about this? Um, or even just if you're unsure about something, don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, like I said earlier, we're all humans. We don't know everything. Um, and if you're confused about something, ask. That's the easiest way to learn, especially if you if you have, um, you know, if you have people around you that have been in the business longer than you have. All right. We'd like to thank our presenters today for their discussion and insights on working with women's lacrosse and stat rules and reviewing difficult scoring situations. We appreciate your questions as well. We wish we could have gotten to all of them. Uh, you know, as we've said so much throughout this call, don't, don't hesitate to reach out if this group or if anyone else can help you as so many of us have been involved in this sport for a while and want to continue to see it, its coverage grow and its uh, exposure grow. We're definitely happy to help. This webinar will be on demand later today in a video format and also as a podcast. So share that information with your colleagues. We encourage you to check our website, collegesportscommunicators.com, for updated information on what's on tap for CSC programming and continuing education. We'll have two more webinars this week, tomorrow, February 27th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Join us for a baseball and softball statistics webinar. And Wednesday, February 27th at 2 p.m. Eastern, the Diversity and Inclusion Committee hosts a webinar entitled Keeping DEI in the Forefront. Kalina, Jill, Stephen, thank you for being here today. And thank you to our attendees. Have a great day. Thanks, Miles.